Um, thank you so much for having me back again for, I guess, class number two um, from what we began last week. For those of you that were not here last week, it's totally fine because we're pretty much doing a new topic. So I'm kidding. No, we're gonna, it's going to be a continuation, but, um, but I'll definitely touch on what we discussed last week to give kind of um, the storyline for how we're connecting um, tonight's topic. Um, so first and foremost, we usually like, or I usually like, that our collective learning together is done in memory of someone or to at least have utilized the power of intention and collective intention. Um, so as we know what happened in Nepal, and there are many, many thousands um, dead and thousands missing, um, and even today's events that happened in Baltimore. So our, our minds, our hearts, our souls should just be um, to those people that, that people should have recovery and should be safe, and, uh, and there should be peace restored for everyone. So if we can just uh, kind of direct our intention tonight for that, that would be great. Okay, last week we raised a couple of questions, a number of questions with regard to Sphira. Sphira is a very interesting collection of days. On one hand, there are two biblical sources for Sphira. One discusses the idea of weeks being counted between the holiday of Passover and Shavuot, although the holiday of Shavuot is not specifically um, articulated in the, uh, in the Tanakh or in the Torah. The date is not specifically said. And not only is the date not specifically said, there is no date tied to Shavuot at all, nor is Sphira tied to the holiday of Shavuot. And we discussed last week this idea that if Matan Torah, if the giving of the Torah serves as the cornerstone of all of Jewish belief, all of Jewish values, the Torah Shabbat Alpeh was given, the oral law, the Torah Shabbat Tab was given, the written law, if all of that happened at Ma'amad Har Sinai, standing at Har Sinai, why doesn't the Torah mention it at all? So then we discussed a little bit about the idea of Sphira and what these weeks really are. And the Rambam, Maimonides, teaches that it's not just merely the, inter, the, in, the intervening days. It's not just the middle of nothing. That each day, in fact, is something that works towards something greater. And in fact, we looked, and we, we looked at the Sfirot, we looked at the Kabbalistic um, terminology and qualities and characteristics that are attributed to creation and attributed to ways in which we can understand God. We looked at some of those to be able to understand how these seven weeks are monumental on a day-by-day -day basis. I would even... I would even be so bold as to say a minute-by-minute minute basis that every minute or every second of every minute of every minute of every hour of every day is something remarkable. There is an opportunity to grow within each of those days, within each of those moments. And the Spirot give us that structure. It gives us the vocabulary and gives us a platform by which to experience what the Spirot and what the time period of Spirot is really all about. And uh, we also talked about that the month of Iyar, which is the Hebrew month in which we find ourselves now, it is the only month of the entire calendar of the entire Jewish year that has a positive commandment every single day, aside from the ones that we are the daily commandments of, of learning Torah or of, of Tefillah. Aside from those, this is the only holiday that has a positive commandment every single day. So every single day, you can engage in some form of positive commandment regarding the counting of Sira. We did raise a question last week about this idea of mourning, okay? What, why is there an idea of mourning? So as many of us may be familiar with, are we allowed, getting haircuts, what other things aren't we allowed to do during Sphira? Weddings. Weddings, but you are allowed to get engaged, just FYI. Um, so right, you're not allowed to have weddings, you're not allowed to cut your hair. What else aren't we allowed to do? Listen to live music. Listen to live music. Anything else? I there, right, there are definitely, definitely some opinions that discuss that, absolutely. Unless it's something basic. Correct, right. Anything that you would not say the blessing of Shehechianu on. Right. So if somebody buys a rockin' pair of Puma socks, doesn't matter, you don't say Shehechianu on that. So even though they're like the coolest things ever, right? So we don't, we don't exactly. So it's, a, it's something that's signif of significance, right. and you would make a blessing of Shehechianu, exactly. Does everybody know what the blessing of Shehechianu is? Yes, so it's a blessing that we say... Um, either upon doing something new or experiencing something new for the first time or the first time in a very long time. Um, so we talk about this idea of mourning, right? So there is an element of Avelot, there is an element of mourning that is part of these seven weeks, it's part of this Sphira time. So on one hand, it's very happy and very experiential because we have all of these ways, these very tangible ways that we can grow week, um, day after day after day, all leading up to... Shavuot, right? So coming out of Yitziat Mitzrayim, coming out of really the shadows of a very difficult and very dark period in Jewish history, coming from slavery, coming from intense trauma, we come from that and emerge, and every day we ascend higher and higher through the power of Sirah to Matan Torah. And yet, during this very powerful, very monumental, very transformative time period, we also have this kind of shadow of mourning. 
And the question is why and what is it all about? And I want to make the question even stronger because you can actually pick which part of Sphera you keep. Does this sound familiar to anyone? Yeah. Right. And you're like, really? Like, during the three weeks, we discussed this last week, during the three weeks leading up to the nine days, leading up to the destruction of the temple, the halakha is very precise and very prescribed. You cannot do this for the, for the three weeks. You cannot do this during the nine days. You cannot do this on the actual day of the destruction itself. There is no, uh, I'll keep the second, I'm going to do this in September this year instead of July, right? We don't have that as an option. There is no option to change. So on one hand, there's mourning, and we, we do have halachot that are similar to, to Avelud. We do have halachot that are somewhat restrictive, and yet it's restricted with this caveat of, by the way, if it's not convenient for you, it's okay, you could just do another half. So it's like mourning, kind of. That's essentially what it is. And the question is why? And this mourning kind of period needs to somehow be relevant in that some, we're obviously commemorating something that took place on one hand. On the other hand, it can't be that serious because otherwise why wouldn't the halacha be very specific? The halacha, when it wants us to do something, is pretty specific, right? So it doesn't, it doesn't say, if you wake up on a Saturday morning and you feel like keeping Shabbat, great. It doesn't tell us that. It gives us a prescribed method of doing so. So it raises this further question of not only is this time period morning, but why is it the morning kind of? Why are we kind of celebrating or kind of commemorating this? And what I want to do is build a narrative together. Take a look at a number of sources and start to build a storyline and start to piece together this very romantic puzzle that we will ultimately hopefully walk away with and how what we're going to talk about fits into this greater picture of what we discussed last week with regard to the Sfirot, with regard to using almost a day-to-day -day manual of how to grow closer to God and how to grow closer to ourselves. So if I can join you on this journey of puzzle making and puzzle doing, um, then I think we'll be able to really put together a very powerful narrative, a very powerful story that, again, will fit back into this understanding of what these seven weeks are truly are all about and really this remarkable time period that we're given to be able to access some pretty profound ideas um, and have a look inside and internally in an introspective way in a way that other parts of the year, not that you can't do it, but it's accessible now in a way that it's closer and a way that it's more tangible than other times. So if you take a look at source number one. So there are a couple of key players here. Has anybody ever heard the name <coughs> Rabbi Akiva? Yes, awesome, excellent. Have we heard the name? We're just going to throw out some names and we'll see what sticks and then we'll start to pull things together. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Awesome, fabulous. Have we heard of Mayrom? Okay, bonfires, log bomber, yes? Barbecues, right? We've heard of that. Okay, everyone's heard of barbecues. Um, okay, so we've log bomber. How about man? Yeah. Man, excellent. So we're going to talk about how all these ideas are going to fit together. Um, 24,000 students of Rabbi Akiva. Yes? Okay, good. So if, if you don't know what we're talking about, we're going to walk through all of it. Anyway, um, let's take a look at source number one. This is taken from the Gemara Masachet Yevamot. Rabbi Akiva says, if you have learned Torah in your youth, you must continue to learn Torah in your old age. If you have had students in your youth, you must continue to have students in your old age. As the verse says, in the morning plant your seeds, and in the evening do not let your hand rest. So as soon as you start to create something, you have to keep going with that. You have to keep, you have to keep it alive. And we all know this, that when it comes to our spiritual existence, very often plants are the go-to, because they actually concretize a very powerful idea, which is that if you don't water a plant, it dies. It, that's just what happens. Even orchids, I know. Um, I kill my orchids. But even orchids, so even the plants that don't need water every single day, that don't need sunlight every single day, that there is a prescribed method of how each plant will survive the best and that will survive the longest. And it needs this, you know, this quantity and this much sunlight. So it needs, it needs different prescribed amounts and quantities. Um, but the bottom line is if they're not taken care of and they're not literally fed and watered and given light, they die. So too with our souls. If they are not literally watered and, fed, watered and fed and given light, our souls too will die, which we obviously don't want to do. So um, the same way we have with, with Torah learning and the same way with, um, um, with kind of our collective Jewish experience, usually plants are, are kind of analogous to that. Um, in the morning plant your seeds, we just read that. They said that Rabbi Akiva had 12,000 pairs of students for those that are arithmet you know, arithmetically challenged, okay? What is 12,000 times two? Awesome, that's where we get the 24,000 number from. Okay, during the period of time died because they did not treat each other with respect. The world was desolate until Rabbi Akiva came to the rabbis of the south. So let's just pause on that for a second. These are 24,000 students 
of the most tremendous, brilliant scholar of the time. Rabbi Akiva had, tw had 24,000 students. Again, it's hard to kind of relate. We, we just had, unfortunately, lost a tremendous Gadol Hador, a tremendous Torah scholar, Rav Aaron Lichtenstein. It was Nifter last week. I don't know if anybody has read his, his stuff. He was the Rosh Yeshiva of Yeshivat Gush Etzion in, um, in Israel, in kind of the Alon uh, Shvot Gush area. And um, tremendous, tremendous scholar. And had thousands and thousands and thousands of students. Rabbi Akiva was one of the, if not the most brilliant mind of probably the entire Gemara, and definitely including contemporary personalities. Tremendous mind to 24,000 students. You can imagine how hard it was to get into his school, right? How hard it was to be, you know, yet in the SATs, you know, you had your GMATs and your whatever, GREs and your, your LSATs, right? You're going to the top of the top of the top. You can imagine the credentials to get into an institution like that and what it was to have Rabbi Akiva as your personal teacher. And yet they all die. Why? What is the, what's the essence? What's the reason? Why they die? Didn't respect one another. Didn't respect one another. So it's very funny. I always, um, I get this question a lot. Sometimes when you open the newspaper and you read about, um, you know, a Jewish person who's being imprisoned because of embezzlement, I don't know, for whatever, for whatever reason. And the question I always get is, see, you don't have to be religious to be a good person. And I would rather not be religious. And did anybody ever have this discussion before? I would much rather be just a good person and not have to be religious. I don't have to keep Shabbat, but if I'm a good person, then I won't you know, be on the front page of the New York Times. That might be true. But for some reason, these have evolved as mutually dependent activities, right? So, uh, so you know, you don't have to be a, an observant Jew to be a good person. You don't have to be a good person to be an observant Jew. And what this is telling us is that the two are deeply, deeply connected. You cannot be a Torah scholar and not be a good person. It doesn't work for the fabric of the value system. It doesn't work. So in, in fact, in the Mishnah and Masachet Avot, it goes through 48 qualities and 48 characteristics of what it is to acquire Torah. It's being a good person. You don't have to be brilliant. It's being a good person. It's being able to empathize, being able to experience other people's pain. Being, there's a certain element of being able to retain information, give over that information, but it really talks about the essence of what it is to, a, to be a person that embodies Torah, and it comes down to the qualities. It comes down to how nice a person are you. Do you care? Do you look out for something else going on around you? You know, it's like the famous kind of subway syndrome, right? Everybody gets down into the subway, your headphones are on, you're like, oh my God, don't make eye contact with me, right? That's what everybody does. And you just avoid everyone's eye contact, especially the four or five subway every single morning, eight to nine. What the heck? That is crazy, right? Everyone's like standing like this, and you're like, oh God, don't touch me, don't look at me, and I just don't, like, don't make eye contact, right? That's everybody's experience. It's stay away from me, right? So the qualities of what it's talking about is looking out for those opportunities to connect to people, looking out for those opportunities to help one another. These 24,000 students were the most brilliant scholars of the time, and yet they couldn't have basic respect. They couldn't treat each other with respect, and therefore had to leave this world, literally. That is, that's the message of what God's telling us. If we cannot find a way to respect one another, we don't belong here. This is not a place, this is not a world that can contain people who don't have respect. So the 24,000 students die. So you can imagine, put ourselves into Rabbi Akiva's position for a second, how devastating that is. Number one, he lost his students. Number two, what, is that, what does he feel as the leader? What does he feel as the teacher? What did he do? What did he do? He, he failed, essentially, right? He, he, he missed, there must have been something that wasn't relayed over in the teaching that they didn't take this to heart, that they couldn't understand that the embodiment of Torah meant respect. So the two are very important and go closely together. And the idea of respect is something that we're going to come back to about how important respect is, definitely in the context of Sphira, but specifically, or, or moreover, in the greater context of everyday life. What does Rabbi Akiva do? The world was so desolate until Rabbi Akiva came to the rabbis of the south and taught them. Who were they? Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yassi, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. It says Rabbi Shimon, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, and Rabbi Elazar ben Shemua. It was they who re-established Torah at that time. So what does Rabbi Akiva do? He gets up, steps himself off, and he starts again. Which, if you think about it, you know, I know last week we talked about um, a tshuva, a responsa from the Holocaust, which was written by uh, Rabbi Ephraim Ashri. There were a number of responsa written during the Holocaust, but in particular, Rabbi Ephraim Ashri, who was the rabbi of the Kovna Ghetto during the war, um, um, wrote a whole series. He actually, it's a five-volume series that he wrote about the questions and answers that he would get in the ghetto. Um, he wrote down the questions on uh, potato sack, 
and buried them when the, when the ghetto was liquidated. It said, if I survive the war, I will come up and dig up these questions. He survived the war, dug up those questions, and published and published the series. It's called Mima Makim, which means from the depths. And we talked about the different types of questions that were asked. So you have questions like, we discussed this last week, we have questions like, there's a kinder transport, and there are 1,200 kids from, uh, from Kovno under the age of 10. And um, if, if a father a father comes to, to, uh, to Rav Ashri and says, I know one of the Gestapo, and I know that I can, I can save my son, but it would require that headcount being filled. So if I take my son, I am therefore causing another child who's not part of that transport to then assume that place, and it's basically a death sentence. And, and Rav Ashri said, no, that you're actually not halakhically allowed to do that. So when you look at the power of the questions that were asked, and you think about the devastation of what people saw around them, and yet still had something in them, to continue asking halakha questions. I mean, I when I read that, I was like, I don't know that I would have asked a question. I, I would have just done, I would have just done that. You have an opportunity to save your child, you go, you save your child. But they understood that they were part of a system and were part of an eternal structure. And that structure means something, and that format means something, and that mandate means something. And when you ask the Rav a question and the Rav gives you an answer, that holds water. That's something that stands, and it's and it withstands time. So when you think about even in the face of such tragedy and such trauma, and again, you know, unfortunately, we do have the Holocaust to look back on um, in, in our most recent history um, as a place of tremendous suffering for Jewish people, tremendous, tremendous suffering. And yet questions came out, answers came out. Judaism has survived. You have communities around the world that, are, that were made up of people who left, who survived the ashes of the war, and then planted themselves and started families and started institutions and started learning, and even those that didn't. They continued, they continued to live, and even that alone is unbelievable. So when you think about what Rabbi Akiva lost, and Rabbi Akiva, of all of our scholars, witnessed pre-Korban, pre-the destruction of the temple, the destruction of the temple, and post-the destruction. So this is a person who witnessed, dare I say, even something comparable or, or even worse than the Holocaust. It's hard to know exactly, because all we, none of us lived at that time, um, but definitely something that Megillat Echa discusses, once again, um, that Megillat Echa discusses as just horrific. The surroundings were just horrific. And this is a person who survived that and yet was still able to get up and start again with five students. So he went from 24,000 of the most brilliant minds to five students. So that, number one, tells us a lot about Rabbi Akiva and who he was and the kind of perseverance he had. Yeah. Um, okay, so how was it possible that like he didn't notice that they were treating each other like that as their teacher like wouldn't that be something that he took note of and like tried to stop or something like he's the one teaching them right. this Torah yeah no it's an excellent question and it's funny because the Gemara doesn't there isn't exact like story or anecdotes to to go back to it seems that it was on the one-on-one -on -one basis that you know I guess he would he would teach he would give he would give you know kind of shiur klali general um, general teachings, and that's why it actually says that it's 12,000 pairs. It wasn't 24,000 individual students. These are one-on-one chavrutos. They would sit and they would learn and they would work together trying to get through the material and um, it could be that in that context of the chavruto, which is the root word of the word chavruta. Is anybody, anybody familiar with the word chavruta? So it's a learning pair. It's chaver. It's a friend. So even the root of what it means to exchange Torah with another person is meant to be through friendship, and it's meant to foster friendship. So it seems that through that one-on-one -on -one interaction, because that's why the Talmud is specific about saying 12,000. In other places it says 24, but here, like the source that we're learning from, says 12,000, there's 12,000 pairs, there's 12,000 people who in their own individual relationships could have made that difference and could have um, kind of modeled what, what kavod looks like, what respect looks like, what treating each other well looks like, and they didn't. So they lost that opportunity. Very good question. Yes? Excellent question. Excellent, excellent question. So, number one, to, to even further your question, there is this idea and a question that is discussed and, um, and debated 
in a very profound way, which is this concept of tzaddik virello, when why 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 um, bad things happen to good people, which is a a cornerstone question. Like that question needs to be asked, should be asked. Anybody who says you shouldn't ask questions, you absolutely should ask questions, and that is a very important question to ask. Um, there are number one, there's a difference between communal tragedy and personal tragedy. So there are different ways of approaching each of those. There is also a post facto versus in the moment kind of um, perspective. So um, particularly, specifically with, with Aharon, with that particular story, so two items. Um, number one is that the reason it was codified in the Torah, the reason it was written down and concretized for eternity was that we're meant to learn something from it. So what the commentators do is that they make suggestions for us to be able to understand what it was that, that had happened because that is meant to be some type of eternal profile, eternal paradigm to learn from. So we need, we need something concrete, and the, there are very differing explanations. Um, the Ramban, Nachmanides, has a very different explanation than Rashi, who has a different explanation than the Eben Ezra. So they kind of come with their, almost their even socio-political background and approach that particular verse with their own set of eyes. Um, so it's not meant to be a definitive answer, but it's meant to dig deeper to try to understand what the root of it was all about. Particularly with the book of Job, with Sefer Eov, there's actually a debate in the Gemara. The Talmud discusses when Eov lived. And if you look through all of Sifrei Tanakh, Eov is not found. He, he's, he's nowhere. So whereas if you look at some of the other books from Tanakh that were authored by various people, there was a very definitive time that that person lived in history. So the Gemara, the Talmud, actually talks about how Eov lived in the time of Yaakov, Jacob, maybe he lived in the time of Isaac, maybe it was Joseph, bless you, maybe it was in the time of Jeremiah. So it's all over the place. And you're like, don't you know when this was written? So one of the explanations, or a few of the explanations that are given is, number one, that Eov, Job, lives in each of us, somehow, in some way, that a person who struggles with this idea of why bad things happen to good people, a person who struggles with conflict, a person who struggles with being challenged, there is somewhat of an Eov in all of us, and, um, or that there's an Eov in every generation. So there are different approaches of how to look at it. Um, so there's a question about whether Eov, whether that entire book in its, in its current form is factual, A to Z, or whether it's also meant to be a paradigm of how we're meant to conquer challenge on a personal level. So there's a difference between personal and communal, but it's an excellent question that probably deserves a whole class in and of itself. Um, but, um, but there are times where we dig and try to find explanation, and sometimes where you, you, know, you kind of stop. Um, and there are nuances about it. So just on that, and I'll answer you with one other um, anecdote in one second. Um, there, is, there are three types of law. And I'm sorry, we're just deviating for two seconds, but we'll come right back to this. So um, there are three different um, classifications of law. There are adut, which are laws of testimony. So for example, God created the world in six days, rested on the seventh, therefore I rest on the seventh. So that's adut. Those are laws that have to do with testimony. There are mishpatim, civil law or rational law that have to do with, okay, don't kill. Okay, good one, right? Because I can't live in a society without having that in place. So there are, although again, you guys can all imagine, don't steal, you know, like, so a lot of those are called mishpatim, which are kind of rational laws. Then you have what's called a chok. A chok is a supra-rational law. It's a law that no explanation is, is specifically given in the Torah. Um, some of those laws are kashrut, so what animals are kosher, what animals are not kosher. We know by what qualities we judge that. If, it's, if an, an animal has split hooves and chews its cut, it's kosher, but we don't know why that is. Um, the laws of shotneys. You can't mix linen and wool. It's a law. We don't know why. Now, there are two schools of thought with how to approach hukim. One is, the reason we keep it is because God said so. It's not because it's rational. It's not because it makes sense to me. It doesn't make society better, and it sure doesn't make me a better person. So why do we actually keep it? Because God said so. And there's a school of thought that says, don't even try to find explanations for it. Because if you try to find explanations for it, you might actually keep it because it makes sense to you, and that's not what you're supposed to do. You're, you don't keep them in vote because they make sense to you. You keep it because God mandated it. Then there's another school of thought that says, absolutely not. Everything needs to be somehow relevant. We don't keep it because it is relevant, but it is important to find relevance to it, to why we keep it. Because otherwise, if I'm like, yeah, kosher makes no sense to me, then I'm not going to do it. But if I try to find explanations, maybe it'll make it easier for me because I can, I can connect maybe to some reasons, but I don't keep it at the end of the day because it, they're, they have very good explanations or good reasons. So that's why even the approach to chuk, to, to chuk, to laws that are super rational, that don't have any given explanation within our finite world and within our text, even with that, there are schools of thought about don't even, don't even venture there. Don't even go there because you're just, like, it's not worth it. Because ultimately we keep it because God gave it to us. So that same rationale, those two schools of thought are also applied to the idea 
of, um, of Sadiq Garalo, so why, why bad things happen to good people. Excellent question. Okay, any other questions? All right. So, okay, so let's come back to this. So we have these five, um, these five disciples of Rabbi Akiva. So again, you think about Rabbi Akiva, all of the tragedy that he experienced, the loss he experienced, and yet somehow mustered up the strength to continue and to go on and to try again. Source number two, Sefer Barishi. Rabbi Akiva said to his new students, this goes back to your question, my sons, the first ones only died because they did not look generously toward one another. Pay attention that you do not act like them. Right? So these five students... He says, maybe I didn't make it clear. Maybe I wasn't clear the first time, but we are going to crystallize this before we even begin learning. 100%, the number one priority is to be kind to each other and show respect to each other. So we know that this almost lives underneath. This is like the foundation of which Torah is built upon. So this becomes the bedrock of how we function. It's about respect. It's about camaraderie, about treating each other kindly. And through that, we build on Torah and learning and more Torah and more learning and connecting to God and connecting to each other. But the bedrock of that is really a value system that connects us to one another. Any questions? Okay, so we have Rabbi Akiva with the ability to dust off and pick up and try again. That's number one. Number two is we are now introduced to the, um, to the concept that respect, again, is the bedrock of, um, of, of, human, of human relationships. Source number three, the tractate from Masechet Shabbat. This, is, this might be a familiar story. It's a very famous story about Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. The Talmud records a conversation between three disciples of Rabbi Akiva. What was the conversation about? The conversation was about how awesome the Romans are, okay? Rabbi Yehuda, how great is Rome for her marketplaces, her bathhouses, and her bridges? So Rabbi Yehuda is quite complimentary of the Romans and their um, amazing contribution to society. So market ha- you know, marketplaces, bathhouses, and bridges. Rabbi Yassi is silent. He abstained. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai denigrated the accomplishments as all being done for their own self-gratification. The marketplaces encouraged prostitution. The bathhouses were only for individual hedonistic satisfaction. And the bridges levied exorbitant taxes on the average citizen. So Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, he's like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say it as it is. You guys, this isn't working. It's not, it's not as great as you think it is. So what's the response? The rabbi who praised Rome, Rabbi Yehuda, was rewarded with a ministerial position. The rabbi, he was silent, was exiled, and what happens to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai? He was given the death penalty. Shocker. Wouldn't you do the same as the, you know, as the Roman emperor at the time? Rabbi Shimon and his son escaped to a cave where a fig tree and a well of water were miraculously created to provide their nourishment. They remained hidden away for 12 years, totally absorbed in, Torah, in the study of Torah. When Elijah the prophet, there's a question in the Gemara whether it was truly Eliyahu Hanavi or some person who came to them, informed them that the Roman emperor was dead, and his evil decree rescinded, they left the cave, right? So you can imagine 12 years sitting in a cave, learning Torah. Um, I can't imagine, like, they didn't have, like, nightlights and stuff. So you can imagine, like, what it was to be inside a cave. And they come out, what happens? Only to see a farmer, okay? They come out, and they see a farmer. And what is the statement? What does Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai say? How can you forsake the eternal world of Torah and occupy yourself in the temporal world of agriculture? Oh, my God, you pathetic person. How can you be engaged in agriculture when there's Torah out there? So, Criticized Rav Shimon. And a fire emanated from his eyes, about to consume the hopeless farmer. God says, you left the cave to destroy my world, thundered a divine voice. Return to the cave from whence you came. They returned to the cave for 12 months. They then exited for a second time, and it was Friday. Close the dust. And they saw an old man running with two myrtle twigs. One is for remember the Shabbat day to keep it holy, and the other is for observe the Shabbat day to keep it holy. He explained, they return to the world in peace. So what's going on here? Any thoughts? What's going on in this story? Right, so Rishon Bar Yochai comes out. He's been learning Torah. You can imagine what his world was exposed to, right, for 12 years. It's not like, you know, you think about how many, how many people here have spent time in Israel learning, right? Remarkable. How about how many, Weeks, right? Or, or maybe, maybe even a year, right? And you come out and you're like, I've really experienced something. Like, and you see the world differently. So times, like 12 years, you think about the intensity of what that was, and he comes out and he sees this farmer. So what's going on? Right? He's disappointed, right? Don't you know what Torah feels like? Don't you know what that exhilaration and that inspiration feels like? This is so mundane. You're missing something. You've never experienced, you've never tasted the beauty of Torah. But what does God say to him? You're wrong. Like, we need farmers. 
We need farmers. Yes, we need farmers. Go back to your cave. You know when people say like go back, like put your head in the hole, like bury head in the bury head in the sand, right? That's literally what it is. Go back to your cave. Go back to your cave where you from where you came from. You obviously haven't learned. And on top of that, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai was a student of Rabbi Akiva. Why did Rabbi Rabbi Akiva's students die? They were respectful. So here he is. He's had this intense, moving, transformative experience of learning Torah. He comes out, and what's the first thing he did? He does. He has no respect for what somebody else is doing. So God says, you're not ready. Go back into your cave. And what happens? He comes back out. What's the significance of these two twigs? What's the significance of these two twigs? Any thoughts? But it wasn't mundane. It was for Shabbat. Exactly. So one, exactly. So one for Shemor and one for Zohar. Exactly. So we know that he was doing something in the spirit of Shabbat. So he was doing using something physical to concretize the spiritual nature of Shabbat to make it more beautiful, to make it more luxurious, and to make it more festive. Absolutely. And then what that does is that highlights what he missed about the farmer to begin with. A farmer working the land of Eretz Yisrael is incredibly important. Right? We know that the first commandment given to Adam, given to, to Adam in the Garden of Eden was to work it, to work it and to guard it. We know that the manifestation of our relationship with God is through rain. Why is rain so important? Because Israel is an agricultural society. And without rain, our crops don't grow. So yeah, you need farmers. Number one, it's the economic survival of the, uh, of, of the, of the economy. Right? So we need it. Um, we need it to be able to sustain, to sustain everyone and for, and for buying and selling goods. So number one, you need it from an economic standpoint. And number two, it's literally a mitzvah of bikurim, of, um, of, uh, of leket, of peah. There are various laws that have to do with the land. Working the land is an incredibly important mitzvah. And what does it do? It synergizes the physical and the spiritual. And we talked about this last week a little bit also, that part of our job is to synergize this world of material and spiritual, the physical with the metaphysical. And through the Torah as our guide, through the mitzvot as our system and our structure, we're able to synergize and synthesize this very powerful world of both that are really on epicent- like that are really like on, on opposite spectrums of the world, which is the most holy and the most mundane, and yet our existence somehow anchors that and brings both into coexistence. So we know that the last part of this particular um, this particular Gemara is talking about these two myrtle twigs, that you've taken something that grows from the ground. Grows from the ground because of what? Because of the farmer, right? So the farmer worked the ground. The ground was able to bring forth trees or bring, bring, bring forth goods. And he takes these two myrtle branches and is then able to be makadish, his own Shabbat table. He's able to sanctify his own Shabbat through something physical. So this is highlighting this very important balance between using the mundane, so are, are physical, material things good? Yeah, they're good. Really important. You know, in fact, um, we think about, if you go back in, uh, in the book of Genesis, um, we talk about Rivka. And uh, Rebecca, Rivka, has, um, has these uh, earrings and nose rings that uh, Eliezer gives her on behalf of Isaac for betrothal. And I remember being in, like, I don't know, third grade, being like, really, such a tzaddikah, such a righteous woman would take, right, would take these these jewels, you know, she should say, no, I need nothing. I just need to bask in the glory of God and I'm fine, right? Right? Shouldn't everyone be on that level? No, because wearing jewelry, looking good, putting effort and time into yourself and your appearance is really important. It needs to be counterbalanced with the inside and with your midot and your qualities and your characteristics and your refinement. It needs to be counterbalanced by something more than the physical and more than the mundane, more than the material. But both are absolutely important. And it's our job to find the beauty in making those coexist through the mundane and connecting the ideas of the Torah and mitzvot and spirituality and infusing it to make the material sanctified. So what Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai was taught here was this very, very powerful lesson of synthesis, this very powerful lesson that you can anchor both. Two very opposing um, forces can both be anchored and embodied in one individual. And Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai had to go back in to learn that lesson. So if we look at this period of mourning, right, there's loss and then there's hope. There's a person that's taken his loss and has used it as a catalyst to build and to continue and to find inspiration and to find hope and to find the next group of people to teach. There's this idea of respect that if we don't know how to respect, we will be in mourning. We will be in mourning forever because if we cannot find a way to express our respect and to treat others with respect, then our own existence is at risk. And number three, that it is our job, not just our job, but it is such an incredible opportunity to find the right ways to synthesize the material and the spiritual. 
Um, we're going to skip over um, the next source, uh, the, the, the rest of this Gemara, just in the interest of time. Um, and I want to actually go to... Let's go to source number five. Okay, I'm sorry, we're going to skip over the Zohar. Um, source number five. It says in the Midrash that from the time the Jews finished the food that they brought out from Egypt, they went for three days without bread, and afterwards the manna began to fall. If we calculate the days, the manna, therefore, began to fall on Lagba Omer. Interesting, right? So you can say, what a coincidence, right? The man fell the same day as what we now call Lagba Omer. Okay, so let's talk about man for a second. What are the properties of man? What is man? Mana. Magic bread, right? It's funny, my husband's from Australia, and they, he had, like, when he was growing up, there's this thing called fairy bread. Anybody ever heard of it? I was like, you ate something called fairy bread? Oh, yeah. So, so magic bread, okay? So magic bread. So, right? So it had some type of um, magical component to it, okay? So what else? What was the month? Spiritual food. Spiritual food. It's like, yeah. It's exactly. Exactly. And it's so funny because you say spiritual food, that, that's an oxymoron. How can you have spiritual food? And yet, that's what Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai saw, and that's what we're tasked with doing, with creating spiritual food, creating spirituality out of the mundane. That's why we make a blessing, right? We take a regular piece of sushi and you elevate it to something very spiritual and very tasty by making a blessing on it, right? So everything that we do, we sanctify it by pausing. For It's a millisecond of pausing where we now create Kedusha with sitting in your office, wherever you are, that you've now created this umbrella of Kedusha that envelops and surrounds your existence. It's unbelievable. So, right? So, holy food or, or spiritual food, right? So what else was man? So the commentators discussed that man had the ability to be whatever you wanted it to be. So now we call that tofu. But that, <laughs> so it had the ability to be anything you wanted. So if you were, you know, you pick up the man in the morning, you'd be like, I really want a steak. And the man became steak, right? Or the, man, or the taste of it became steak. So it was anything you, any imagination you had, that's what the man had the capacity to become. So it's remarkable. So you think about, the whole thing, it was your imagination and your level of creativity that changed. And it means that your mind was different than my mind was different than your mind. Because not all of us are going to have the same interests, right? So if we think about that, that we have a mass product that is completely personalized. So you have a mass set of days, weeks, right? Seven weeks is delivered to the masses, and yet I have the ability to personalize that experience every step of the way, even though... We are all experiencing the same structure, but our steps are going to be completely different. And our storyline within that structure is going to be completely different. So again, you talk about spiritual food, the ability to find those religious moments, find those spiritual moments in the mundane, and be able to personalize it in a way that it tastes good. And I'm using that word on purpose because we're talking about mud. So that in a way that it tastes good, in a way that it's palatable, in a way that you can go about your life and can go about your day in your mundane work life and gym and friends, and you can still go about all of that in a way that you're elevated. It's, it's a spiritual existence that synergizes and synthesizes itself with the material and with the physical. So it's a tremendous gift that we're given. And we know, again, if the man fell in Magba Omer, we skipped over source number four, which was the Zohar. Let, I'll give you guys a guess. Who died on Magba Omer? Excellent. So, right? So, there are a lot of things that are happening in and around Lagba Omer. The students of Rabbi Akiva stopped dying on Lagba Omer. So, again, normally you think, stop dying. Why would we celebrate that? That seems like a time when you would start mourning, right? But we stop mourning and we cease the mourning and we cease the sadness because Rabbi Akiva was able to find a tomorrow. He was able to revitalize his hope and his inspiration by teaching others. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai made a mistake. He came out of that cave. And he didn't realize the good of what the world could be. And he had to go back in to learn that lesson. We know that respect lives at the cornerstone of all of this. And if you throw man in on top of that, that this happened also in Lagba Omer, man is it a holy day. It is a day that is, that is imbued and filled with the possibility of creating change through merging the physical and the spiritual. And that is something so remarkable and yet also so personal. So it's something that's available to the masses and yet completely personalized with our own individual footprint on it. Um, so it's a very, it's a very powerful, um, moving idea. Um, any questions? Yeah? How do you do that? Like, how do you personalize something like that? Awesome question. Excellent question. So I will, I will answer it with the last source that we do. As it relates to Sphira, outside of Sphira there are other tactics. But, but we'll come back to that. There are... You know, it's really hard to, you know, look in the mirror in the morning and say, be spiritual, 
right? Be, you know, be inspired, right? It doesn't just happen. Number one, there's work and there's effort. And even through that work and effort, we're not always going to feel inspired. We're not always going to feel moved to that ultimate, you know, place of ecstasy. We don't, we're not necessarily always going to get there, but there are very tactical, almost like operational things that we can do to help facilitate the process. And then once that process gets going, it's something that is innate in the process and happens as part of the process. But we'll talk about the tactics in a second. Um, source number six. This is the Baal HaTanya from Likutei HaTorah and from Sefer Bamidbar. But in order to get to this high level, ah, in order to get to this high level, one must count the counting of the Omer. This is what it means, count 50 days. But the contemplation of the greatness of the infinite one, blessed is he, 49 different aspects, which are alluded to in the verse, to you, God, are the greatness, which are the seven midot of the upper world of Atzilut. So the reason we're talking about the seven, there are actually ten spheros, there are these ten spheres that um, touch on the human terms of the different personality types of God. Again, these are not God's personality types. These are, these are qualities that we attribute in order to understand creation and in order to understand the world in which we live. Um, and we only deal with the seven that are within our world, Chachma, Bina, and Da'at. Those three qualities are actually considered in the upper world, outside of the, outside of the world in which we live. It doesn't mean we can't understand it. There are, there are ways that we can understand it, and there are specific times during the year when it is more powerful to learn these ideas, it's more accessible during those times. Um, in particular, the 10 days of repentance between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Each of those 10 days, one of the 10 Svirot is learned each day. So there are very, very amazing books that I'm happy to recommend um, that can help make this digestible because it's very powerful, very profound ideas. Um, so we deal with the seven that are within our world, and we'll look at the, at the diagram below in a second. Each of them, in turn, is made up of seven, totally four, four, totaling 49. The 50th gate is the upper gate, which includes all the aspects, and everything in this is contained within the 49 aspects, which are united to a single unity. And we'll talk about what that means in a second. If you take a look at source seven, because we, we need the actual diagram to be able to, to concretize this a little bit. So if you see the top three... And um, for those that don't yet read Hebrew, um, there are amazing crash courses all throughout New York City. So find this, you know, find a great location where you can learn, learn Hebrew. But Keter, Chachma, and Bina, those three that are on top, are considered the upper, the upper three. The lower seven, the way Sphira works is that every week is devoted to a Nida, is devo or, or devoted to a Sphira, devoted to one of those. And every day of, those, of, of that week is a Nida within a Nida. What does that mean? If you look at the middle column for a second, there's the week of Chesed, right? Chesed is, is giving. And week number, um, you know, in the second day of the week of Chesed is the quality of restraint in giving. The third day would be the quality of harmony with giving, then ambition within giving. Does that make sense? So it's the, you have your sphere of the week, and then you have your sub, your sub seven that are like the, the qualities of the day. That's why the weeks aren't just important, but the actual days are, are equally as important. Um, this is one of those tactics and one of those structures. To be able to look at what each of these qualities are and find what it means to me. Because um, not all of us are going to be giving by nature. That's just not, not everybody's created the same way. So some people are like natural givers and some people are givers to a fault, right? So I'm sure we, if we ourselves aren't like that, we know people that are like that where you're like, just say no, right? It's okay to say no. It doesn't make you a bad person to say no. And every single day you have the opportunity to learn through what these qualities are as it relates to you. So just as an example, tonight, which we're not, we can't make the bracha yet because we need like another 10 minutes, but um, tonight's quality, the 25th night of the Omer, is netzach sheben netzach. What's netzach? Ambition. What does it mean to explore the quality of ambition within ambition? Or endurance is another, uh, another way that it's translated. So if I am an ambitious person, what does ambition look like? an ambitious person? How driven am I? How driven am I in the right ways? Are there things that I don't drive myself on, that I could drive myself on? And what are those things that are holding me up from doing it? Is it fear? Is it historical? Is it social? What is it that doesn't allow me to get there, right? Why am I so scared of working out five days a week? Why? Why can't I just do it? Right, right? I, I, can, I know I can get up in the morning. Why can't I just... This is obviously not me, it's someone else. But why can't I just do it? If I think that, you know, if Torah learning, if I say that it's so important to me, why can't I carve out 10 minutes every day to do it? Where is that ambition within the ambition? I know I'm an ambitious person. I know I've done it. I know I can do it. Why is that not going? Why is that part not, 
not pushing forward. And sometimes it's just identifying the question that's important because the answer sometimes won't come immediately, but just laying down the question or asking ourselves the question is sometimes enough to, to charge ourselves to figure out why. Why, what is it? What am I so afraid of? Am I afraid, am I afraid of becoming more religious? Am I afraid that I'm gonna get turned on to something and then people are gonna think that's weird? What is it that I'm truly afraid of? So the Sfirot give us the definitions, it gives us the vocabulary of how to start exploring those inner questions. What does ambition look like for an ambitious person? What does ambition look like for a non-ambitious person? And how do we begin to chip away at what those definitions are? And we only have one day to do it. I'm kidding, you have more than that. But there's one day that's devoted um, over the course of the 49 days. And guess what? Tomorrow is going to be, what does the quality of devotion look like in ambition? Can I be devoted and ambitious at the same time? Ambitious is usually self-driven. What's the difference between dri being driven for myself versus driven for others? How does devotion start to play a role in that? So this gives us the framework and the vocabulary to start developing the ideas around what it means to grow. And that's why, again, you come back to the kind of original big picture of what are these seven weeks all about. These seven weeks are about getting ourselves to move from abdut l'chayrut, to move from a state of slavery, from a state of being under someone else's watch in a negative way, to being able to be, quote-unquote, free to experience what it is to breathe Torah, what it is to breathe a relationship with God. This process helps facilitate that experience. And again, it doesn't mean that other times of year this is close to us. It just means it's closer now, right? So this, during the summer, the sun is closer, so it's hotter, right? Is that how it works? In the winter, it's further away, right? Yes, we remember sixth grade science, <laughs> right? So it's, it's closer. It doesn't mean that you can't be warm during the winter. You can, but you don't, have to, you don't have to do much for it to be warm. It's accessible. It's close right now. It's within our sphere. It's within our grasp to be able to look at this and, and use this and utilize this in a way to help transform ourselves because we are all slaves to ourselves in some respect or, or maybe slaves to others in some respect, but at least slaves to ourselves. And we talked last week that Mitzrayim does not mean Egypt. Right? Newsflash, it does not mean Egypt. Mitzrayim is actually from the root word Mitzar, which means from the straits. Something narrow, something very constricting. So it's very easy to leave Egypt. It's not easy to leave Mitzrayim. And this gives us that platform to be able to experience what freedom is. Because only once we experience what freedom is can we understand and appreciate the value of Torah. So I think that, you know, next week we will, please God, be celebrating Lagva Omer. But if we look at this idea of mourning, the morning is kind of couched with this hope of inspiration, where Rabbi Akiva found the ability to get up and try again. We understand the value system of respect. We understand that through this process, or as highlighted through this process, that we all have a very unique voice in being able to participate in the synergy of olam hazeh, the physical material world in which, you we, in which we live, and using that as a springboard to sanctify the mundane and to bring the metaphysical into the physical world and elevate the world in which we live to, to exist on a higher spiritual plane. And that all exists within our grasp. And using the Sfirot is the tool. That's like our, you know, box of tricks, right? So behind this, you know, yellow, you know, the curtain, you'll have like your box of yellow tricks, your box of tricks. And we're able to utilize this as tools to help experience what the, what the capacity, what the potential of this time frame is to experience. Um, any questions? Yes. I don't know if you discussed this last week, but what's the like connection between women in the sphere when it's a time bound past? Excellent, excellent, excellent question. We touched on it last week. So there is what's called the mitzvah asay shahazman grama, which are time bound mitzvot in which women are what's called exempt. There are four halachic terms which are really important to define and create distinctions between. One is patur, which means exempt. The other one is chayav, obligated. Asur, which means forbidden, and mutar, which is permitted. Those are four very different halachic distinctions. Because, just because a woman is not obligated doesn't mean she's not allowed. So that's where the distinction comes in. So 100%, if a woman is able to, it, she might not be, it might not be a positive commandment for her. Does she get the positive, you know, quote-unquote reward for doing it? 100%. Participating in a mitzvah is always a good thing. Um, but she is exe technically exempt from it. Um, there are certain um, exemptions. For example, any mitzvah in which a woman was, in, was involved, um, even if it is a time-bound mitzvah, um, that her involvement overrides it. So, for example, on Pesach, 
it, um, she's absolutely 100% obligated in all the things that are even time bound because that they were also too involved in that miracle and even on top of that the Gemara actually tells us that which means that in the merit of righteous women we were redeemed from Egypt so it doesn't even say that they were part of the miracle. They were the miracle. They were the facilitators of that miracle. So in those cases, um, the story of, um, of uh, Esther and Purim, the same thing with Hanukkah. So women would be obligated in those mitzvot. But those four kind of halachic distinctions are really important. So just because they're not chayav doesn't mean it's not mutar. So just because they're not obligated doesn't mean they're not permitted. Great question. Yeah. Of course. So, excellent question. There are, there's a lot of debate around that. Um, the reason there's a debate around that is that those particular mitzvot require certain state of mind um, and certain state of what's called tuma and tahara. Is anybody familiar with those terms? They are horribly mistranslated as pure and impure. It is not pure and impure. It is, tuma is a state of halakhic restriction, and tahara is the restoration of what would normally be allowed. Um, the reason it's important to make that difference is that... Um, in particular, women, when you say you're in a state of tum'ah and your state of impurity, you feel gross, and that's, you feel gross already, so there's no reason to make that worse. So tum'ah, does, it does not actually mean impure, it just means halakhically restricted. So it means that certain things that are normally available to you are therefore, are then restricted during that time frame. So the law specifically with regard to tzitzit and, um, and tzfilin, there are, other, there are other qualities that come into the equation. It's something we can definitely discuss. But there is, even within that, there's debate about whether whether it means that women aren't allowed or don't have to. So even within that, there's, there's debate among, amongst the Rishonim and Akronim, the earlier commentators and the later commentators. Mm -hmm. uh, it seems like 12 is in Ukraine, English. That was number? 12, like 12,000 there, and then he went for 12 years, and then returned for 12 months. Mm-hmm. Like, do you know why 12? That's an interesting question. Um, mm, I mean, 12, 12 tribes. There, uh, 12 isn't... It's a great question. I don't know if, I mean, I don't know if it's threaded through this particular story, um, but it's a great question. It's a great question. The 12 as a number isn't, doesn't, I mean, numbers are very significant in, in Torah and in Halakha, but um, that's usually the number 3, the number 7, the number 40, the number 13. There are other, number 15, there are certain numbers that hold um, uh, different types of status. I haven't heard about 12, but it could be that there is an underlying message within the story. Great question. Any other questions? Okay, so just as we, as we wrap up and we, thank God, have another few weeks um, to be able to tap into this very, very powerful and very profound opportunity using this free road, using this as kind of a set of vocabulary to be able to raise the questions that we need to raise um, and understanding this vis-a-vis -vis the idea of Lag Omer, the idea of mourning, that it is really mourning embedded within hope and the idea that Rabbi Akiva was, again, able to push the limits and push his own loss and to be able to try again. Um, the ideas of respect that serves as the bedrock of everything that we are. And if we don't have that right, we can't even venture into Torah. And, um, and again, the idea that, we're, that we'll be able to, to connect the very, very powerful idea that what is material is okay. It's not just okay, it's celebrated and it's great as long as we're able to elevate it in a way and infuse it with elements of spirituality. Um, and that's part of our job and that's part of what these seven weeks allow us to explore and allow us to do, to create this beautiful synthesis and this beautiful partnership between the material world in which we live and the spiritual world in which we want, in which we want to participate in our souls want to be. So thank you so much. Our are here. Many of them are outside. So, no, um, second, we just pause this.